This afternoon I may proclaim to you God's word as the church summarizes it and confesses it in Lord's Day 33 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Where we confess the following, what is the true repentance or conversion of man? It is the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. What is the dying of the old nature? It is to grieve with heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin, and more and more to hate it and flee from it. What is the coming to life of the new nature? It is a heartfelt joy in God through Christ, and a love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. But what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith in accordance with the law of God and to his glory, and not those based on our own opinion or on the precepts of men. After this sermon, we will voice our amen together by singing from Psalm 1. Psalm 1, after the sermon. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, last Sunday afternoon, when we went through Lord's Day 32, we learned that those who by faith have been united to Christ are called to a life of good works. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve for a life of good works. And in Christ, we are God's new creation for a life of good works. We must do good works because Christ works in us. In him we are a new creation, as Paul writes, the old has passed away and the new has begun. And of course, we recognize that that doesn't come easy. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ works in us. And yet there is this constant battle between the old and the new nature. And we confess this struggle in Lord's Day 33. The dying of the old, the coming to life of the new. And so we'll examine this confession Under the following theme and points, we confess that true conversion involves daily repentance. We'll consider three things about repentance. First of all, that it's a miracle. Secondly, we'll consider the nature of repentance and the practice of repentance. You'll notice that our confession uses two words, repentance and conversion. And they're very closely related They mean essentially the same thing. Conversion is the change that is worked in the heart of a sinner by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is sometimes called rebirth. At the same time, one must repent from sin, turn away from sin. And after one's conversion, one continues to repent from sin. And although there's a slight theological difference between the two terms, our catechism basically uses them interchangeably. And when you Hear the word conversion, and if you think of a biblical example, maybe your mind right away goes to the the conversion of the Apostle Paul, his sudden conversion on the road to Damascus. He began his journey as a persecutor of the church, and he ended the journey as a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
Or we think of the conversion of the Philippian jailer who came to faith after experiencing a violent earthquake, listening to Paul and Silas sing during the night, and then he asked them, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you must be baptized. What these two examples have in common, brothers and sisters, is that conversion and repentance are miraculously brought about by God who works forcefully in the lives of individuals with his Holy Spirit. But we must also recognize that when one of our children comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is just as much of a miracle as the conversion of Paul or the Philippian jailer. In Canons of Dort, chapter 3, 4, article 12, we confess that it is not in our power to be converted or regenerated, but it is the supernatural, most powerful work of God. It's comparable to God's work of creation or a miracle of raising the dead. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So it's obvious that conversion or repentance is a mighty work of God. It's not a human process. It's not simply a human process in which you are born in the church, raised in a Christian home, you get six years of catechism classes, then you go to pre-confession class and make profession of faith, and somehow you make it through your rebellious years, and now you're a believer. Or perhaps you're not. It's not a human process. Of course, the Holy Spirit uses the means of the instruction of your parents and the instruction of the catechism teachers and the preaching in the church, but it is the Spirit who makes a dead person alive. It is the Spirit who makes the stubborn obedient and the unwilling willing. It is the Spirit of Christ who does this work in us. It is a miracle work in us by His grace. That's what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. That's what happened to the Philippian jailer in the middle of the night. That's also what happens to our children when they come to faith. Also in them, the Lord must work his wonderful and powerful work of conversion, that supernatural work of conversion, so that they come to repentance. And so we really must guard ourselves against thinking that repentance and conversion is just a, a lengthy and some perhaps somewhat automatic process that occurs in the lives of our children. There's more to it than that. Even though we cannot see or understand exactly how the Holy Spirit works in the life of a child, how does the Holy Spirit work the miracle of faith? Jesus told Nicodemus, with the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's true, of course, the covenant children grow in understanding and maturity. That includes repentance and conversion, which is why we confess that it is a daily process. It is the dying of the old and the coming to life of the new nature. But we still need to recognize that this process is a miracle of grace. It is truly a miracle. And so we, you can't just leave it to the process of, of instruction and teaching and preaching. But we have to surround this process with constant prayer. We may not just leave it to the 
parental instruction or to the instruction of the catechism teacher, where we have the obligation to surround the children of the congregation with our prayers, that we pray for their repentance and conversion. Because think about also the form for baptism. When we present our children for baptism, we do it in the knowledge that they are conceived and born in sin, by nature children of wrath. And they cannot enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Quote from that form. And so we confess and believe that the stubbornness and unwillingness of our children needs to be changed into obedience and willingness. They need to be converted. And that can only happen through the supernatural, most powerful, and inexpressible work of the Holy Spirit, to quote the Canons of Dort once again. And that's why our prayers are so necessary. The Lord Jesus says, Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. So the question is, are we seeking? Are we knocking? And not just for ourselves, but for our children. For the children of the congregation. The point is, again, we need to recognize that the work of conversion is a supernatural, most powerful work of God. It is he who works this miracle in us, just as he worked the miracle of raising people from the dead or bringing this world into existence. And like all miracles, it, it cannot be fully understood, but that's okay. Again, to quote from the Canons of Dort, in this life, believers cannot fully understand the way in which God does this work. Meanwhile, however, it is enough for them to know and experience that by this grace of God, they believe with the heart and love their Savior. In other words, when you believe and love your Savior, you may see this as, or count this as evidence of the miraculous work of God in your life. When you have, when you have an eye for God's love and, and, and for Jesus Christ and when you have an eye for how he gave his son to die for you and you experience that, that love of God, you believe that and accept that, then you may be assured that this is the work of God in your life because that's only possible because he works faith and repentance and conversion in your life. Right? We confess God changes us. We cannot change ourselves. That's the miracle of repentance. And that's a miracle congregation that continues throughout the life of a believer. It's a daily thing. And so that comes, with that we come to our second point, the nature of repentance. If we think back to Lord's Day 16, you, you might think that the Catechism speaks in two different languages. In Lord's Day 16, we confess the following. Through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with him. Our old nature is put to death, crucified, and buried with him. But now, in Lord's Day 33, the Catechism talks about our old nature dying. So what is it? Is it dead or is it dying? Has it been crucified or is it being crucified? And let's not blame the authors of the Catechism for making an apparent contradiction. 
congregation, this is the language of Scripture. We read from Colossians 3. In verse 3, Paul writes, You have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. In other words, as Paul has also written in Romans 6, your old nature has been crucified with Christ. But then, two verses later, in verse 5, he writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So again, we might ask, well, is our old nature dead, or is it dying? Well, the answer is both. It's helpful to understand that Lord's Day 16 is found in the section of our deliverance in the Catechism. We could say that it has to do with our justification. We are being declared right with God. Our old nature is crucified with Christ, then we are justified before God. Lord's Day 33 is found in the third section of the Catechism, the section under thankfulness. So we could say that has to do with our sanctification, our renewal. So from the perspective of justification, our old nature has been crucified with Christ. That's an accomplished fact. But from the perspective of sanctification, the remnants of our old nature are still there. Even though we are justified, we remain sinners as long as we live on this side of Christ's return. That's why scripture calls us to put our old nature to death. There's a process here that is still ongoing. It's only after this life that our justification and our sanctification become completely one. We are not there yet. But just because we're not there yet, we must not despair. Because God promises to bring us there. As we heard last week, Sunday morning, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who justifies you also sanctifies you. He who sanctifies you also glorifies you. And so we may not only confess the Lord is with me, but the Lord is going with me. He is the one who makes it possible for me to grieve with a heartfelt sorrow over my sin and gives me a heartfelt joy to live according to his will. You see, congregation, when God works repentance and conversion in you, he also wants you to continue in the work that he has begun in you. He involves you in your sanctification. Justification is his work for you. Sanctification is his work in you. So the Lord not only converts you and grants you grace to repent, he also grants you grace to live out of that life of repentance. Which is why Paul exhorts the Philippians, for example, in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And so he who has justified you also calls you to a life of daily repentance. When he causes you to be born again, it is not to lead a life of spiritual inactivity. Our confession indicates that very nicely by using the two phrases, dying of the old nature, coming to life of the new. And this daily process is the continuation of the supernatural and miraculous work of conversion in your life. The one who is dead in sin is being made alive 
in Christ. And that must go on from one day to the next. The old nature has to die. The one that pervades your thoughts and and your character and your feelings and emotions, that it has to go. That means you grieve with a heartfelt sorrow that you have offended God by your sin. And that doesn't mean that once in a while you're a little bit disappointed in yourself. And it's not grieving over the consequences of sin either, as if, oh man, what a horrible world we live in. The true sorrow means that we feel truly guilty before God because of our own sin, that we admit our complicity in the consequences of sin too, in the misery of this world. We are to blame. I am to blame for the misery in this world. My sins brought Christ to the cross. And with that grief comes a sense of guilt and shame that you are a sinner before God. And that this holy God is offended by sin. But congregation, then we must not let that grief lead us to inactivity, but it must drive us to the cross. Because that is where we find our heartfelt joy. That's the only place. Our heartfelt joy in God through Christ. Because then we can look through our guilt and shame and see that we truly have a good God and a loving Father. And that's what gives us joy. Because in his great love and compassion, he he allowed his one and only son, his dearly beloved son, to be nailed to the cross for you and for me. And so there is sorrow, but there's also joy. There is guilt, but there's also a love and delight to do God's will. That's what we need to remember. That's what we need to hang on to. Because conversion is a matter of time. The dying of the old nature, the coming to life of the new nature, that's going to be a lifelong experience for every single one of us. And it's always a battle. And sometimes a very painful battle. And yet, yet we ought to be thankful when we experience that battle. When we experience that struggle. If you do not experience that struggle, then you need to repent. Because then you're not growing. Then the new nature is not coming to life. The old is not being put to death. That struggle is part of the life of a Christian. Think of what Paul writes in Romans 7. The things that I know I should be doing, I don't do. Things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. It's a lifelong battle. But then think about the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. His life had come, had spiraled out of control. And he was totally lost. But then what? He remembered that he had a father, a loving father. And when he remembered his father, he felt ashamed of himself. He felt guilt and shame. But at the same time, he rejoiced because he still had a loving father that he could turn to. And he knew he could go there. So the more we rejoice in the love of God, 
so much more we will feel shame for our sins, but also joy in the Father who love us, loves us. One author put it this way, the branch with the most fruit or the most joy in God is the branch that bows deepest in submission and humility. Well then, how do we make a practice of repentance? It is a matter of practice. It has consequences. Paul writes in Colossians 3, you have been raised with Christ. That's the reality of the consequences. It means you are to seek the things that are above, where Christ is. And then in the rest of the chapter, he lays out what that looks like. He speaks about putting off and putting on, putting to death what is earthly, putting on the new self. And he very, he's very explicit about it. What must we put off? Well, the old attitudes and actions, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lies. These are the kind of things that belong to the old nature, the nature that has been crucified with Christ. So you died with Christ, you were raised with him, therefore put to death these things in you. Instead, put on the new self, the new nature. A nature that is characterized by being resurrected with Christ. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We have to have attitudes that lead us to have godly actions towards other people. Paul writes about bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love. We're called to love as Christ has loved us and to forgive as God has forgiven us. Christ showed you mercy when you were unworthy. Even when you were his enemy, he already loved you. And so we are called to put that same attitude into practice towards others. And the point is, if you do not live a life of repentance, you will perish. You will not enter the kingdom of God. And so we may never think to ourselves, you know what, I'm just going to put off pious living. That's something, you know, I'll think about that in the future sometime. Or maybe, I'm, I'm just going to sin one last time and then I won't do it again. I'll quit tomorrow. But repentance may never be postponed, congregation. Scripture says, as we read from Hebrews 3, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You need to obey that voice because you need to live every day as if today is your last day. Why? Because your eternal rest is at stake. Because if we provoke the Lord with an unrepentant and unbelieving heart, he will not allow you to enter into his rest. And that warning is unmistakably clear. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And then exhort one another so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And note, these words were not spoken to pagans. These, were, these words were written to, to members of the church. And there's a specific warning here. Because... The, the author writes, who were those who, were, who, who heard and yet rebelled? 
Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And to whom did God swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those members of the church who were disobedient? The point is, if you do not want to repent from your sin, and if you refuse to give up your anger or your bitterness or your gossiping or whatever else it is, if you don't want to quit, then you are not in a state of repentance. If you just live to satisfy your passions and your evil desires, when you just covet more and more, then you are not living as those who have been raised in Christ. And you will surely perish unless you repent. There's always the unless of the gospel. So let's not live with the attitude of how close can I get to my sins and still make it into the eternal rest? Or can I repent just enough but still enjoy some of the passions of my old nature? No, sin is sin and we have to flee from them. Flee from our sins and we have to hate our sins. And we have to learn that sin is dangerous because it can drive us away from God. Instead, we are called to put on the character of Christ. To have an attitude of mercy and compassion and kindness, humility, meekness and patience. And to bear patiently with one another's weaknesses. We must have hearts that are ready to forgive just as Christ forgave us and to allow the peace of Christ to rule our hearts. When we have that attitude, then we are living in a state of repentance. No, we will not reach perfection in this life. But there's a difference between wanting to repent and refusing to repent. And we live in that state of repentance, then we are free from the curse of sin. And free from the threat of eternal damnation. And then we can also enjoy each other's company. In worship. And in the congregation and around the table of the Lord. Well, brothers and sisters, the miracle of conversion and repentance is ongoing. And it is practical in its consequences. And as I already mentioned, in its practice, we do not find that we reach perfection, not in this life. But again, that should not drive us to despair or make us lazy Christians. Remember what we learned last week from Lord's Day 32. God has created us for good works. He has even ordained good works for us to do so that we can please him. And in Christ, our works are pleasing to God. That is the result of Christ's work as well. They truly please the Lord. He is delighted when we pray to him. He is delighted when we worship him. He is delighted when we flee from sin. He is delighted when we want to do what is right. He delights in those things. And he continues to sanctify us by his grace and Holy Spirit. And then our life on earth also has a glorious purpose. It is pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. And then it will also give us joy because we experience joy in living the life that we have in Christ. Amen.